Uh, one thing to keep in mind as we think ahead to next week and the missions conference, the World Missions Encounter Weekend, is that we are having a meal together, and uh, Tom from the mission team has asked me to remind you that we need you to sign up for the meal. Uh, we could try to do the uh, loaves and fishes things and just kind of pray that God would provide food for everyone, and he may do that. Or also you could sign up. Uh, so please do that today before you leave. Come to the Missions Encounter Weekend. It's going to be awesome, and uh, we're going to learn to think missionally about things in this world. Very appropriate as we think about uh, the things that are happening on the world stage. Even now, we are praying for our missionary partners in the Ukraine and throughout Eastern Europe. Uh, may God bless them even this morning, and may God be with them as they worship in very, very difficult circumstances on this Lord's Day. I want to say a prayer for them before I read the scripture, and then we'll jump in. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, uh, we come to you this morning with heavy hearts, praying for our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine, in Kiev, throughout that region, Lord God. Uh, these world matters are very, very difficult, and they are complicated and complex, and we do not presume to have all of the answers to all of the great conflicts that exist in this world. We simply, as your people, Pray for peace in the name of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. We pray that you would spare our brothers and sisters who live in the Ukraine. We pray, Lord God, that you would bring an end to this war. We pray, Lord God, that you would stop the aggression of the aggressors. And we pray, Lord, that the President of the United States, uh, the President of the Russian Federation, the President of the Ukraine, uh, the president and leaders of the NATO nations would be able to come together and find some solution that would cease and halt the bloodshed that is taking place. Lord, we pray uh, for the Reformed Evangelical Seminary of the Ukraine, uh, faithful partners in gospel ministry for many, many years, that they would be able to continue their, their work as they train up pastors and missionaries, many of whom are in Russia right now, preaching and planting churches and doing evangelism. Oh, Lord God, this, uh, this great work must continue. And so we pray for peace that it might continue in this day. Hear our prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. We're going to read a fairly large section of Scripture, so if you're normally not one who reads along, you might want to do that today. We're going to read 1 Samuel 1 through chapter 2, verse 11, and I thought about trying to trim it, but it's just such an awesome story, one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible, so hey, we're reading the whole thing. This is what you came here for. We're reading the Bible. 1 Samuel chapter 1, starting in verse 1. There was a certain man of uh, Ramathaim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. 
On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk at Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant, you, grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow, but Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him, only may the Lord establish his word." So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli, and she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted my petition that I made to him. 
Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by his actions are weighed. By him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the, festu- but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against him he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of of Eli the priest. This is God's word. Let's go to him now in prayer. Oh Lord our God, what a remarkable story of your providence, of your mercy, of your grace. We ask, Lord God, that you would speak to us as you spoke to Hannah, for we, your servants, are listening. Hear our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes life feels like a country song. Sometimes your truck breaks down, your dog dies, your wife leaves, your husband stays. You're working a dead-end job, you're living in a dead-end town. Sometimes our hearts can feel as empty as a church on Monday morning. Sometimes our hearts are so broken that it feels like only God can put them back together again. The Bible has a word to describe it, and that word is barrenness. It refers to someone who's unable to have children, but it's so much more than that. It's a feeling of emptiness. It's a feeling of sadness. It's a feeling of isolation and desolation, of loneliness and despair. Barrenness is the feeling you feel like hot tears running down warm cheeks. When you have nothing, 
when you've lost your hope? What do you do when you lose hope? What did Hannah do when she lost hope? This morning, we're going to meet a barren woman, a woman named Hannah. She's in a dead-end marriage. She's living in a dead-end town. She has no children. She has no hope. Now, they didn't have pickups back then, but if they did, Hannah's would be broken down by the side of the road somewhere in the hill country of Ephraim. Here's the question. Does God care about people like Hannah? Does God care about people like us? Does God care about orphans and widows? Does God care about exiles and refugees? Does God care about single moms? Does God care about people who eat Thanksgiving dinner alone? Does God answer our prayers? And if so, how does God answer our prayers? If we're physically barren, does God give us children? If we're emotionally barren, does God give us hope? If we're spiritually barren, does God give us grace? How does God turn distress into deliverance? How does God turn sorrow into celebration? How can we overcome our paninas? How can we love our Elkanas? How can we learn to pray like Hannah prayed? A simple, small-town country girl, the Patsy Klein of Ephraim, who prayed one of the greatest prayers that anyone on God's green earth has ever prayed. If you're taking notes today, here's our outline. We have three scenes in the story today. In scene one, we're going to see Hannah's distress. In scene two, we're going to see Hannah's discovery. And then finally, in scene three, we're going to see Hannah's deliverance. Now the thread that connects these three scenes together is prayer. Through prayer, God moves Hannah from distress to discovery to deliverance. Does God care about little people? Does God care about little nations like the nation of Israel? Does God care about little nations like Ukraine? Does God care about little churches like Pinewood's church? Can God answer impossible prayers? Can God overcome impossible odds? Can God humble the exalted? Can God exalt the humble? And if so, how? Let's take a closer look. We begin with scene one, Hannah's distress. Verse two, Elkanah had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Verse six, 
And Hannah's rival, Peninnah, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, Peninnah used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Verse 10, Hannah was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. It's worth noting that the phrase that we translate deeply distressed literally means bitter of soul. In the book of Job, after Job had lost everything, everything he owned, his entire family, he was struck struck with sickness, he was in pain, we are told that he was bitter of soul. In 2 Kings chapter 4, we meet a Shunammite widow, a widow who had nothing. She was impoverished. All she had in the world was her son. When her son died, the prophet Elisha said, this woman is bitter of soul. Same phrase. The point is that Hannah wasn't mildly disappointed about her inability to have children. She was devastated. She was destroyed. In a sense, she had lost the will to live. She thought to herself, I am childless and therefore I am worthless. Now the question is why? Why was she so bitter of soul? Well, the text gives us a number of reasons. For one thing, her husband Elkanah had two wives. Now, sometimes we just gloss over a thing like this, and we go, ah, well, it's the Bible days. You know, I mean, everybody had a couple of wives. You know, Solomon, he had hundreds of wives. What's the big deal? But it is worth noting that polygamy is always a disaster in the Bible. Always. You will never find an example of polygamy in the Bible where it all works out in the end. Polygamy in the Bible is a source of anger and hatred and resentment. It's never, never good. Anywhere you find polygamy, you find a disaster. Now, I could extrapolate from that to say that anytime you find adultery in our culture, you find a disaster. Anytime you find infidelity in our own culture, you find a disaster. The same thing could be said about pornography in our culture, whenever we deviate from the way that God has designed marriage and family and romantic relationships, it's a disaster. Things fall apart. People get hurt. In this story, Hannah got hurt. In this story, I believe Peninnah got hurt. Now, we, we see her as the bad guy in the story, and in many ways she is. She's the foil to Hannah. But why was she so cruel? Why was she so hateful and hurtful? Well, as the saying goes, hurting people hurt people. And she too was deeply wounded by Elkanah's sin. It's a mess. Now, the most obvious source of Hannah's distress is the fact that she couldn't have children. That's highlighted in the story. Now, in one sense, infertility is always a big deal in every culture. 
I have a, a dear friend, one of my best friends, he and his wife have been unable to have children, and it is deeply, deeply painful to them. One of the things that I don't often think about, and maybe some of us don't often think about, is that much of the pain that he experiences and that his wife experiences comes in his relationships with other people in the church. Oftentimes, because he and his wife are of the age where they should have children but do not have children, they feel like they're walking around the building with a giant neon sign pointing at them saying, these people are infertile. These people are different. These people are not good candidates for friendship and fellowship. They, they wear that like a scarlet eye on their chest. They're different. They don't belong. Now, the, think about this. In the ancient world, that same feeling existed, but it goes even deeper than that. Think about the pain that Hannah would have experienced in a place, in an ancient culture, where children were literally everything. In the ancient world, children were the key to your economic prosperity. This was an agrarian society, and so the more children you had, the more workers you had for your farm. You could plant more, you could harvest more, you could sell more. And so if you had a big family, you were wealthy. And if you had a tiny family, no children, then you were poor. We see this in the book of Ruth. We see this over and over again as God makes special provisions for orphans and widows. People who are impoverished because they don't have children. Children were also the source of economic stability and security in the ancient world. In the ancient world, they didn't have social security. They didn't have 401ks or pensions or retirement accounts. Your children were your retirement account. The more children that you had, the more people who could take care of you in your old age. Children were also vital to national security in the ancient world. Back in those days, the more children you had, the more soldiers your nation had to fight against your enemies. Normally in the ancient world, the bigger army won the battle. And so the more soldiers you had, the less likely you were to be overtaken or oppressed by the surrounding nations. So the women with children in the ancient world were considered national heroes, they were doing their patriotic du duty by raising up little soldiers who would defend the nation against their enemies. Go deeper. In, the Israel, in Israel, children had deep spiritual significance for the people. Back in the book of Genesis, Eve was promised a son. A son who would destroy Satan, crush him forever, and vindicate God's people once and for all. Deliverance would happen through the birth of a miraculous son. Now think about the covenant that God had made with Abraham. He promised Abraham, I will give you many, many children. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, as numerous as the sands on the seashore. You will be the father of millions of people through the birth of a miraculous child. 
when God wanted to demonstrate his covenant faithfulness, his unrelenting commitment to his promises, he would often do so by giving barren women children. Sarah was barren until she gave birth to a son named Isaac. Rebekah was barren until she gave birth to two sons, twins, Jacob and Esau. Rachel was barren until she gave birth to Joseph and Benjamin. Samson's mother was barren until God gave her a son. Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, was barren until God gave her a miraculous son. Are you seeing the theme? How do you know God loves you? He gives you a son. He gives you children. He gives you many sons and many daughters. What if you don't have any children? What if God closes your womb? That's a striking phrase, is it not? Oh, well, she just didn't happen to have children. The Lord had closed her womb. What do you do without inheritance in the promised land? What do you do without deep spiritual significance in the people of Israel? Does God really love you? Does God love barren women? Does God love Hannah? Now here's the story that Hannah has been telling herself. You have no children, and therefore you are worthless. Here's the story that Peninnah, the other wife, was telling her. I have children and you have none, therefore you are a failure. Here's the story that Elkanah was telling her. You have no children, but who cares? I love you. Isn't that enough? In fact, I love you twice as much as my other wife. I challenge you to find a Hallmark card expressing that sentiment anywhere on earth. I love you twice as much as that other wife. Happy Valentine's Day. Love Elkanah. This guy's a, these guys need counseling. It's a, it's a very disastrous story. Here's the question. What is our culture telling you? If you don't have children you're worthless. If you're not married, you're worthless. If you're not rich, you're worthless. If you're not famous, worthless. If you're not beautiful, you're worthless. Ladies, if you can't manage to balance family and motherhood, and career, and diet, and exercise, and volunteering at church, and volunteering at your kid's school, and driving your kids to all of their practices, and uh, maybe getting a graduate degree, and being active on social media, and uh, inventing a new line of scented candles. <laughs> you don't measure up. You're barren. Here's the ideal woman, and it's not you. Now, there's a ver version of all of this for guys, too, but it's usually, how big is your truck? Big truck, you measure up. Small truck, not so much. I drive a hybrid. 
I'm exactly like Hannah. I don't measure up. I'm barren. Here's the thing. It's not true. None of it is true. Peninnah is lying. Elkanah is lying. Our culture is lying to us. Children will not satisfy the deepest longings of Hannah's heart. Her husband's love definitely won't satisfy the deepest longings of her heart. Bigger houses, faster cars, better careers, none of that makes us whole. What does Hannah need? What do we need? Whose love does she really need? What kind of child does she really need? Scene two, Hannah's discovery. Verse 11, And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, God of angel armies, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall ever touch his head. This is a remarkable prayer. What she's praying is, Lord, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you. I'll make him a Nazarite. That's the part about no razor touching his head. I'll essentially drop him off at the temple. He will be an assistant priest. He will assist the Levites all the days of his lives, life. He won't live with me. I'll probably see him once a year when I come up to the temple at Shiloh. He won't support me financially. He probably won't stop, stop the taunts of Peninnah. Elkanah is never going to understand this. I don't care. I'm done. I will no longer allow myself to be defined by my culture and my people. I am who you say that I am, and nothing more and nothing less. Only God can tell us who we are. Only God can give us a name. Only God can give us grace. And so she prays, You, Lord God, are the God of angel armies. You are the God who fights my battles. Your love for me is better than ten sons. Your love is all I need. You see, if God had given Hannah a son before she made this discovery, it would have been an absolute, unmitigated disaster. It would have destroyed her. Samuel would have been a curse to her. Hannah would have made him an idol, an alternative source of meaning and worth. He would have been her functional savior, and she would have been lost forever. A dead-end woman living in a dead-end town with a dead-end husband. Instead, the God of angel armies 
waited until her heart was aligned with his heart, and then, and only then, did he answer her prayers by giving her a son. Verse 19, And they arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Notice how she worshipped the Lord before God gave her a son. She worshipped the Lord before Samuel was even born. Her whole attitude changed. Why? She discovered that ultimately her happiness was not about Samuel. True happiness is found in God alone. In his promises, in his provision, in his grace to his people. God remembered Hannah. And God will remember you. With or without children, with or without the dream job, with or without a a best friend at your school, God will remember you. How does he remember? How does he deliver us? That's where we're going next. Scene three, Hannah's deliverance. Now, the first thing that we see is that God delivers us from sorrow by giving us joy. Chapter 2, verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. What a contrast from chapter 1. In chapter 1, she is broken, defeated, filled with sorrow and pain and heartache. She's anxious. She's exhausted. She's lost the will to live. And now she is overwhelmed by joy. When we pray with the goal of glorifying God and enjoying Him forever, when we set aside our agendas in favor of His agenda... When we meditate on his presence and his purposes, his protection, his provision, God takes away our sorrow and gives us joy. He gives us a stable identity. He becomes for us the rock of our salvation, the firm foundation upon which we may stand as sons and daughters of the king. Joy. The second thing we see is that God delivers us from guilt by giving us grace. Verse 4, the the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for, for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings life. He brings down to Sheol, and he raises up. D. 
Do you hear all the reversals there? The mighty are broken and the broken are mighty. The full are made empty and the empty are made full. The fertile become barren and the barren become fertile. God's grace turns the world upside down. God's grace turns everything that we think we know about life in this world absolutely on its head. God's grace turns sinners into saints. God's grace turns orphans into children, sons and daughters of the king. We are no longer slaves. We are no longer dead in our trespasses and sins. Through Jesus, we are alive. Through Jesus, we are forgiven. This story, with all of its reversals, gives us a a little glimpse of the gospel, which is the ultimate reversal. On the cross, Jesus, the sinless Son of God, died in the place of sinful, broken human beings so that sinful, broken human beings might be counted as sinless, worthy sons and daughters of God. Jesus emptied himself on the cross so that we might be full. Jesus was forgotten so that we might be remembered. Do you hear that word over and over again in this text? God remembered. Jesus was forsaken so that we might be blessed. Jesus takes away our guilt and he gives us grace. The last thing we see, and we'll close with this, is hope. God takes away our fear and gives us hope. Verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The word anointed is the word Messiah, Mashiach. And this is the first time that that word is used in the whole Bible. The first time the word Messiah was spoken was by this poor, barren woman named Hannah. Now, did Israel have a king when Hannah prayed this prayer? No, they did not. And yet she prays for the king. Well, maybe it was David. Is she talking about David, the birth of David? Did David judge the ends of the earth? Did people from other nations come to have their disputes settled by King David? Did he rule as the king of kings and the lord of lords? No, he did not. She's talking about Jesus. She's talking about our king. She's saying God is going to reverse things once and for all through the birth of a miracle child. But it's not my child. It's not Samuel. The miracle child isn't my son. The miracle child is God's son. 
Hannah, did you know that your baby boy was not the real Messiah? She did. She absolutely did. She knew that she was rejoicing in the birth of another woman's son. A woman that we meet in Luke chapter 1. As we hear her pray, her version of this prayer. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He has remembered me. For behold, from now on, all generations shall call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Mary's child, Jesus, would be a son of grace. In Hebrew, ben Hana, the son of Hannah. Prayer gives us a vision that looks beyond the world as it is to the world as it will be when Jesus, the son of grace, comes again to fully and finally pay the debt of our sins, to exalt us as sons and daughters, to rule with him in the heavenly places. Jesus, the Son of God, is the Son that we need. His love is better than anything we could ever hope for on this earth. Let's go to that Son in prayer. O oh Lord our God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the good news that you exalt the humble, that you make barren people fertile and fruitful once again. Lord, sometimes that happens physically. Sometimes it happens emotionally or spiritually. We ultimately know, Lord God, that you are sovereign, you are in control that your grace lifts us up from the bowels of death and gives us everlasting life. Thank you for the birth of your miracle son. Thank you for Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.